Welcome to Archetypes and Anarchy, a podcast created by me, Courtney Floyd, and my Introduction to Fiction students at the University of Oregon in spring of 2018. Episode 15, 1001 Nights. So this is group three, and I'm Sean. I'm Isabel. I'm Joey. And I'm Atlas, and we're doing our Archetypes podcast on 1001 Nights, the introduction piece. All right, so 1001 Nights is often known as Arabian Nights, and it is a collection of fairy tales, all of which center around a single frame story, and that frame story is what we're going to be looking into today in this episode. 1001 Nights has influences from the Middle East, India, North Africa, China, Greece, and many other places. The earlier versions only contained about 300 nights worth of stories, but many additions have been made throughout history and between translations to different languages. And each of the individual tales within the story have a variety of structures, some of which are simple, while others have multiple layers and reoccurring characters. And this flexibility of the format is what led to the many additions over time. Now we're going to be going over the historical background of the story. One of the main things we saw was the culture of the Middle East at that time was strictly male-dominated, and women were more seen as, like, property rather than people, more in a sense to just keep their husband happy. This was seen, like, throughout the whole story. Yeah, exactly. I found, especially in the story, female life was really, like, almost disregarded, and this male leader was, like, the person that was in charge of everything which is also backed by the religion, Um, especially back then. I'm sure Islamic beliefs are similar to they are now, but they definitely um, prize male members of society over female. Another point towards the different gender dynamics in the story is the monarchy. The king was a trailblazer for social injustice. The monarchy created all these social norms, which made it okay to rape and kill women without any repercussions. Yeah, I think in addition to the monarchy's influence on social norms, it also lended itself to being uh, distributed beyond just the palace. It was also like a way that a story of a king could be distributed to common people like merchants and other working class people. And I think that has a good relationship to the idea of oral tradition and how fairy tales and folk tales are often passed along beyond just the borders of their country or the borders of their town. In addition to that, um, it may have traveled along trade routes to the west. I I found a little article uh, talking about how it may have most likely moved from the Middle East uh, towards Europe where it was later translated and then uh, moved to the Americas when it was translated to English. Another concept that I encountered while researching for this podcast was the idea of folktales being transnational. And I read an article by Sadhani Natani, and she stated that this folktale in particular 
is transnational due to the way that translators and collectors have sort of acted as storytellers. They have influenced it in their own way each time it is retold. And they each time they've added their own stories and own culture into the mix. Speaking of culture, one thing that's undeniable in the time period was religion. Uh, through some research, I found that uh, in the Muslim religion, there's a few main ideas, but one of which is the idea of belief in predestination, which is the same as like prophecy. And that can kind of explain part of the reason that most of the stories that she tells and the story itself has a prophetic spin. She is like from the beginning, the one who is going to stop these killings just simply because she had this idea and she planned it out. So this prophecy bleeds through not only like everyday life through religion, but into their works of literature as well. As the tale progresses, time can be seen to have a serious influence on it. This is because the stories are all created during different time, time periods, which can be seen having a large effect on the overall language and structure. Now we're going to be performing A Thousand and One Nights. Among the histories of past peoples, a story is told that in the old days, in the islands of India and China, there was a Sasanian king, a master of armies, guards, servants, and retainers, who had two sons an elder and a younger. Although both of them were champion horsemen, the elder was better than his brother. He ruled over the lands, treating his subjects with justice and enjoying the affection of them all. His name was King Shariar, while his younger brother, who ruled Persian Samarkand, was called Shah Zaman. For 10 years, both of them continued to reign justly, enjoying a pleasant and untroubled lives until Shariar felt a longing to see Shah Zaman and sent off his vizier to fetch him. To hear is to obey, said the vizier, and after he had traveled safely to Jazaman, he brought him greetings and told him that his brother wanted a visit from him. Shazaman agreed to come and made his preparations for the journey. He had his tents put up outside his city, together with his camels, mules, servants, and guards, while his own vizier was left in charge of his lands. He then came out himself, intending to leave for his brother's country. But at midnight, he thought of something that he had forgotten and went back to the palace. When he entered his room, it was to discover his wife in bed with a black slave. The world turned dark for him, and he said to himself, If this is what happened before I even leave the city, what will this damned woman do if I spend time away with my brother? So he drew his sword and struck, killing both his wife and her lover as they lay together before going back and ordering his escort to move off. When he got near to Shariar's city, he sent off messengers to give the good news of his arrival, and Shariar came out to meet him and greeted him delightedly. The city was adorned with decorations, and Shariar sat talking happily with him. But Shah Zaman remembered what his wife had done, and overcome by sorrow, he turned pale and showed signs of illness. His brother thought that this must be because he had had to leave his kingdom, so he put no questions to him until some days later he mentioned these symptoms to Shah Zaman, who told him, My feelings are wounded, but did not explain what had happened to his wife. In order to cheer him up, Shariar invited him to come with him on a hunt, but he refused and Shariar set off by himself. In the royal palace, there were windows that overlooked Shariar's garden, and as Shah Zaman was looking, 
The door opened, and out came twenty slave girls and twenty slaves, in the middle of whom was Shariar's beautiful wife. They came to a fountain where they took off their clothes, and the women sat with the men. Mas'ud, the queen called, at which a black slave came up to her, and after they had embraced each other, he lay with her, while the other slaves lay with the slave girls, and they spent time, spent their time kissing, embracing, fornicating, and drinking wine until the end of the day. When Shah Zaman saw this, he told himself that what he had suffered with was less serious. His jealous distress ended, and after convincing himself that his own misfortune was not as grave as this, he went on eating and drinking so that when Shariar returned and the brothers greeted one another, Shariar saw that Shah Zaman's color had come back. His face was rosy, and following his earlier loss of appetite, he was eating normally. You are pale, brother, Shariar said, but now you have got your color back, so tell me about this. I'll tell you why I lost color, his brother replied, but don't press me to tell you how I got it back. Let me know first how you lost it and became so weak. Shariar asked him, and his brother explained, When you sent your vizier to invite me to visit you, I got ready and had gone out of the city when I remembered a jewel that it, that was intended as a present for you, which I had left in my palace. I went back there to find a black slave sleeping in my bed with my wife, and it was after I had killed them both that I came on to you. I was full of concern about the affair, and this is why I became pale and sickly. But don't make me say how I recovered, Shariar however, pressed him to do this, and so Shah Zaman finally told him all that he had seen. I want to see this with my own eyes, said Shariar, at which Shah Zaman suggested that he pretend to be going out hunting again, and then hide with him so that he could test the truth by seeing it for himself. Shariar immediately announced that he was leaving to hunt. The tents were taken outside the city, and the king himself went out and took his seat in one of them telling his servants that nobody was to be allowed in to visit him. Then secretly he made his way back to the palace where his brother was and sat down by the window overlooking the garden. After a while, the slave girls and their mistress came there with the slaves and they went on acting as Shah Zaman had described until the call for the afternoon prayer. Shariar was beside himself and told his brother, come, let us leave at once until we can find someone else to whom the same kind of thing happens. We have no need of a kingdom, and otherwise we would be better dead. They left by the postern gate and went on for some days and nights until they got to a tall tree in the middle of a meadow, where there was a spring of water by the seashore. They drank from the spring and sat down to rest, but after a time the sea became disturbed by, and from it emerged a black pillar, towering up into the sky and moving towards the meadow. This sight filled the brothers with alarm, and they climbed up to the top of the tree to see what was going to happen. What then appeared was a small genie, with a large skull and a broad breast, carrying a chest on his head. He came ashore and went up to sit under the tree on top of which the brothers were hiding. The genie then opened the chest, taking from it a box, and when he had opened this too, out came a slender girl, as radiant as the sun who fitted the excellent description given by the poet Atia. She shone in the darkness, and day appeared, as the trees shed brightness over her. Her radiance makes suns rise and shine, while as for moons, she covers them in shame. When veils are rent and she appears, all things bow down before her. As lightning flashes from the sanctuary, a rain of tears floods down. 
The genie looked at her and said, Mistress of the nobly born, whom I snatched away on your wedding night, I want to sleep for a while. He placed his head on her knee and fell asleep, while she, for her part, looked up at the tree, on top of which were two kings. She lifted the genie's head from her knee and put it on the ground before gesturing to them to come down and not to fear him. For God's sake, don't make us do this, they told her, but she replied, Unless you come, I'll rouse him against you, and he will put you to the cruelest of deaths. This so alarmed them that they did what they were told, and then she said, Take me as hard as you can, or else I'll wake him up. Shahiriyar said fearfully to his brother, Do as she says, but Shahazaman refused, saying, You do it first. They started gesturing to each other about this, and the girl asked why, repeating, If you don't come up and do it, I'll rouse the genie against you. Because they were afraid, they took turns to lie with her, and when they had finished, she told them to get up. From her pocket, she then produced a purse from which she brought out a string on which were hung 570 singet rings. She then asked them if they knew what these were, and when they said no, she told them, All these belong to lovers of mine who cuckolded this genie, so give me your own rings. When they had handed them over, she went on, This genie snatched me away on my wedding night and put me inside a box, which he placed inside this chest, with its seven heavy locks, and this in turn he put at the bottom of the tumultuous sea with its clashing waves. What he did not know was that when a woman wants something, nothing can get the better of her. As a poet has said, Do not put your trust in a woman or believe their covenants. Their satisfaction and their anger both depend on their private parts. They make a false display of love, but their clothes are stuffed with treachery. Take a lesson from the tale of Joseph, and you will find some of their tricks. Do not see what your father do not see your father Adam was driven out from Eden thanks to them. Another poet has said, Blame must be matched to what is blamed. I have grown big, but my offense has not. I am a lover, but what I have done is only what men did before me in the old days. What is a cause for wonder is a man whom women have not trapped by their allure. When the two kings heard this, they were filled with astonishment, and said to each other, Genie, though he may be, what has happened to him is worse than what has happened to us, and is not something that anyone else has experienced. They left the girl straight away and went back to Shahirayar's city where they entered the palace and cut off the heads of the queen, the slave girls, and the slaves. Every night, for the next three years, Shahir Ayar would take a virgin, deflower her, and then kill her. This led to unrest among the citizens. They fled away with their daughters until there was no nubile girls left in the city. Then, when the vizier was ordered to bring the king a girl as usual, he searched, but he could not find a single one and had to go home empty-handed, dejected, and afraid of what the king might do to him. This man had two daughters, of whom the elder was called Shahirazad, and the younger Dunyazad. Shahirazad had read books and histories, accounts of past kings and stories of earlier peoples. Having collected, it was said, a thousand volumes of these covering peoples, kings, and poets. She asked her father what had happened to make him so careworn and sad, quoting the lines of the poet. Say to the careworn man, care does not last, and as joy passes, so does care. When her father heard this, he told her all that had happened between him and the king from the beginning to the end, at which she said, Father, 
marry me to this man. Either I shall live, or else I shall be ransomed for the children of the Muslims and save them from him. By God, he exclaimed, you are not to risk your life. She insisted that it had to be done, but he objected. I'm afraid that you may experience what has happened to the donkey and the bull with the merchant. What was that, she asked, and what happened to the two of them? Her father told her, You must know, my daughter, that certain merchants had both wealth and animals, and had been given by Almighty God a knowledge of the languages of beasts and birds. He lived in the country, and had a home, a donkey, and a bull. One day the bull went to the donkey's quarters, and found them swept out and sprinkled with water. There was seed barley and straw in his trough. While the donkey was lying there at his ease, at times his master would ride him out on some errands, but he would then be taken back. One day, the merchant heard the bull say to the donkey, I congratulate you. Here I am tired out while you are at your ease, eating seed barley. On occasion, the master puts you to use, riding on you, but then bringing you back, whereas I am always plowing and troughing and grinding corn. The donkey replied, When they put the yoke on your neck, and want to take you out of the fields, don't get up. And if they beat you, or else, get up and then lie down again. When they bring you back and put beans down for you, pretend to be sick and don't eat them for one, two, or three days. Neither eat nor drink, and you will have rest from your hard labor. The next day, when the herdsman brought the bull his supper, the creature only ate a little, and the next morning, when the man came to take the bull out to do his plowing, he found him sick and said sadly, this is why he could not work properly yesterday. He went to the merchant and told, Master, the bull is unwell, and he didn't eat any of his food yesterday evening. The merchant realized what had happened and said, Go and take the donkey to do the plowing all day in his place. When the donkey came back in the evening after having been used for plowing all day, the bull thanked him for his kindness in having given him a day's rest, to which the donkey, filled with bitterest regret, made no reply. The next morning the herdsman came and took him out to plow until evening, and when the donkey got back his neck had been rubbed raw and he was half dead with tiredness. When the bull saw him he thanked and praised him, but the donkey said, I was sitting at my ease, but was unable to mind my own business, and then he went on, I have some advice to give you. I heard our master say that if you don't get up, you are going to be given to the butcher to be slaughtered, and your hide is to be cut into pieces. I'm afraid for you, and I said I have given you this advice. When the bull heard what the donkey had to say, he thanked him and said, Tomorrow I'll go out with the men. He then finished off all his food, using his tongue to lick the manger. While all this was going on, the merchant was listening to what the animals were saying. The next morning, he and his wife went out and sat by the buyer as the herdsman arrived and took the bull out. When the bull saw his master, he flourished his tail, farted, and galloped off, leaving the man laughing so much that he collapsed on the ground. His wife asked why, and he told her, I was laughing because of something secret that I saw and heard, but I can't tell you or else I shall die. Even if you do die, she insists, you must tell me the reason for this. He repeated that he could not do this for the fear of death. But she said, you were laughing at me. And she went on insisting obstinately until she got the better of him. In distress, he summoned his children and sent for the Kwati and the notaries with the intention of leaving his final instructions before telling his wife the secret and then dying. He had deep love for her, she being his cousin and the mother of his children, while he himself was 120 years old. When all his family and his neighbors were gathered together, he explained that he had something to say to them. 
but that if he told the secret to anyone, he would die. Everyone there urged his wife not to press him and so bring about the death of her husband and the father of her children. But she said, I'm not going to stop until he tells me, and I shall let him die. After that, the others stayed silent while the merchant got up and went to the buyer to perform the ritual abulsion, after which he would return and then die. The merchant had a cock and fifty hens, together with a dog, and he heard the dog abusing the cock and saying, You may be cheerful, but here our master is about to die. When the cock asked why this was, the dog told him the whole story. By God, exclaimed the cock, he must be weak in the head. I have fifty wives, and I keep them contented and at peace while he has only one, but still can't keep her in order. Why doesn't he get some mulberry twigs, take her into a room, and beat her until she either dies or repents, and doesn't ask him again? The vizier now said to his daughter, Scheherazade, I shall treat you as that man treated his wife. What did he do? she asked, and he went on. When he heard what the cock had to say to the dog, he cut some mulberry twigs and hid them in a room where he took his wife. Come, he said, so that I can speak to you in here and then die with no one looking on. She went in with him, and he locked the door on her and started beating her until she fainted. I take it all back, she then said, and she kissed his hands and feet. And after she repented, she and her husband went out to the delight of their family and the others there. They lived in the happiest of circumstances until their deaths. Scheherazade listened to what her father had to say, but she still insisted on her plan, and so he decked her out and took her to King Shahriyar. She had given instructions to her younger sister, Dunyazad, explaining, When I go to the king, I shall send for you. You must come, and when you see that the king has done what he wants to me, you are to say, Tell me a story, sister, so as to pass the waking part of the night. I shall then tell you a tale that, God willing, will save us. Shahrazad was now taken by her father to the king, who was pleased to see him, and said, Have you brought what I want? When the vizier said yes, the king was about to lie with Shahrazad, but she shed tears, and when he asked her what was wrong, she told him, I have a younger sister, and I want to say goodbye to her. At that the king sent for Dunyazad, and when she had embraced Shahrazad, she took her seat beneath the bed, while the king got up and deflowered her sister. Then they sat talking, and Dunyazad asked Shahrazad to tell a story to pass the waking hours of the night. With a great pleasure, replied Shahrazad, if our cultured king gives me permission. The king was restless, and when he heard what the sisters had to say, he was glad at the thought of listening to a story, and so he gave his permission to Shahrazad. Now we're going to go into the discussion of our close readings. Um, for starters, the characters were huge symbolism in the story. Shahrazad can be seen as the main protagonist as she risks her own life to save the rest of the woman. And this represents how she could be seen as, well, she was one of the few heroines during this time. And Shaharir can be seen as the major antagonist his monarchy among the land, as well as the adultery committed against him to punish the rest of the land, can be seen towards his antagonist role in the text, and how he punished the, all of the women in it due to his 
problems and power. Yeah, I totally agree. I think Shaharazard is definitely like the heroine and the main uh, protagonist. She's also like one of the one of one of if not the only positive character in the entire story. She's like she stops this oppression, and not even the king's aides will do anything about it. But for uh, Shahariar, to his credit, he does have a motive for, like, his antagonist role. Like, often a bad character is bad, like, bad, corrupt to the bone. But he's, like, he has traumas in his past that has led him to this. So, like, he kind of has a redemption quality that could be seen as the story goes on or if it finishes. To go back to the heroine archetype, I also think um, Shahar Razad's sister, Dayazan, also acts as a heroine because if it wasn't for her, and um, she had to make every story that she said really engaging or else her sister would be murdered. So I think that she's a character that shouldn't be forgotten. And this can speak a lot towards women's roles during this time. Their usage of this mind game that they played on Shahariar helped show their like cunning and less physical strengths that they used. Continuing on that point about women and their cleverness in the story, it's kind of the environment and the time period that allows this to happen. So the king, Shahariar, is susceptible to being tricked because he has such a low opinion on of these women, so he doesn't expect them to be smart enough to trick him. And therefore, they their their like plan and their ideas work because he just doesn't doesn't see it in their capability. I also think their the brothers kind of manipulative characteristics also could make either Shariar or both the brothers um, villain archetypes in the stories. Because for one example, a way to cheer up Shariar after he finds out about his wife is to see other people in pain in some in situations worse than his yeah actually i agree with that he always was like on the hunt for somebody who had a worse predicament than him like his yeah. bro- like who sees his brother and then he sees the uh gen- genie and uh and his uh cuckold of a yeah he, he doesn't really want to be like the the greatest example of kind of that like weakness so he wants to find someone who has like greater weaknesses or greater troubles in life so that it kind of masks his own issues yeah no for sure i totally agree it's like uh he's trying to blunt his own trauma with someone else's and in reality he's like he's the one imposing this on other people now yeah it, it gets to a point where he's affecting others by trying to mitigate his own problems in life which is kind of like this cause and effect where like something happens to him so he feels the need to kind of lash out and affect all of the people within the village to the point where they fear him to an either even greater extent than before it's like kind of a unique example of this as well especially in fairy tales because he is like he's a character that's not that's not corrupt. He, he well, he is obviously an evil character, but the reason that he does it is to mask his own like his own feeling of uh, of indifferent or like of uh, pain. You know, it's not it's like a defense mechanism, not so much like the like bloodlust or like trying to slake the thirst of it. You know. Yeah, and it's also kind of related to like the depth of the character because it's he's not just evil to be evil like a like a witch in like a common fairy yeah, tale. That's, exactly that's just. It evil and mean just to 
be that. He kind of has a reasoning for it. It doesn't justify it, but he has like some like underlying trauma that relates to his to the things he does it throughout the story. As for the general archetypes, we found the hero to obviously be Shaharazar um, as like the heroine of the time, which we talked about before. And then for the dispatcher who was the one to tell that there was a problem, we found it in a couple different characters. The first one would be the father of Shaharazar, even though he didn't really want her to go and stay with Shahir, he reluctantly let her do it so that she could save and help the rest of the women. We also found there was a parallel between the vizier instigating the heroine and then also the brother instigating the antagonist because they both influence their counterparts just in a positive way and a negative way as well. So the father, who is the vizier, instigated the heroine by telling his daughter about Shariar, who was marrying women. And without knowingly, he instigated a whole other plot to the story by the daughter saving the day and um, offering herself up to Shariar to protect the rest of the women in the country. And then the negative parallel to that is the brother who instigated um, Shariar, who was the antagonist, by um, helping him along on his journey and um, instigating a whole other madness to the conflict by um, Shariar going out and raping and killing women um, every single day until um, the vizier, who is the father, went and told the heroine. Lastly, the archetype of the helper can be credited to the little sister who went in and asked Shaharazar to tell the stories, which in turn gave to the rest of their relationship. I now want to address something that Atlas brought up, the underestimated female character and how that relates to the cleverness of Shaharazad. And it's it's a very common archetype in fairy tales, the, the kind of clever trickster character that can either be positive or negative. Sometimes there's negative tricksters and then there's kind of positive characters like Hansel in Hansel and Gretel, where he uh, spread the pebbles to find his way back. We also talked about this in our previous podcast. That's why I'm referencing it. But it was kind of a, a, a look into how these similar clever characters uh, work their way around kind of violent characters and negative characters. So in Thousand and One Nights, there's the contrast between the king and Shahrazad because she's a very clever character while he's a very violent and ruthless character. And it it puts a really good uh, dynamic between like the female kind of more so quiet and articulate character who has these this great sense of storytelling, which contrasts with like a violent character who has been uh, doing all this damage and violence to the palace. Building upon that a little bit, it's interesting because this is kind of more rounded and like realistic approach to uh, the I would say climax of the story or the battle. 
uh, instead of two great warriors, one negative, one positive, duking it out in a physical contest, uh, contest in this situation, there's a physical and brutal, strong uh, negative influence versus this clever, smart, like kind of manipulative person. And that's something that is kind of parallel in uh, the real world more than anything. Like you rarely hear about two, two or like a like a, an overthrow in the government that is like called to a duel. You know, it's it's always some it's always political. It's always thought out. So that could also have some tie back to the way that the uh, story was written, seeing that it was brought all the way throughout the different countries. It kind of takes some influence from different governments and stuff like that. But yeah, it kind of, it, it doesn't have the classic David and Goliath style. Well, it does in a way, but it's not like, it's not a physical contest as much as it's a mental contest because one of the one of the uh, contestants is not playing the right game, technically. It kind of brings up the idea of uh, diplomacy and how like different countries are more likely to move towards diplomacy, which is kind of breaking out of the era of countries simply uh, being violent to one another, and it's kind of bringing it more towards the modern era of modern diplomacy. And I think that's like a uh, that's a perfect timeline for when this story was written, because like as we kind of transition into this di- diplomatic era, this story continues to build onto its uh, onto its wealth of knowledge. So yes, there will be stories about two people going to battle and dueling to the death, but there will also be stories of like wit and outwitting your opponent. And finally, one of the other things that uh, that I noticed about um, this story was his idea of uh, his his thoughts on women. So all of the women that he encountered in this story, besides the virgins that he killed after deflowering, uh, were strong, beautiful women. So first it was his wife, which he killed when he found that she was uh, sleeping with a slave. And then it was his brother's wife, who was sleeping with many slaves, who was killed in it afterwards. And then finally, the genie's wife, who had cuckolded the genie without his knowing 700-some times. So all of his like encounters with beautiful women, as, as uh, quoted here, the, the description of the genie's, um, the genie's kidnapped wife is as radiant as the sun. So, they, I mean, like, every, every character that was negative that was a female was always a beautiful character so he kind of encompassed all females because like he thought of these people as maybe like higher class than everyone else so everyone below them would be if not worse so he yeah he encompassed these people into one uh generalization and because he put them all in this generalization and stereotype he punished them all in the same way and this caused for the entirety of the outbreak onto the land of his deflowering of women and then killing them, which was seen as his same strategy towards all of the women he came encountered with. So Shahar Riyar kind of just grouped women into one idea that um, sort of like all women are uncontrollable and sleep with countless men. But when he met Shahar Razad, um, she sort of changed his kind of lifestyle in a way because after the stories were read to him um, he started relying on the stories but in reality without him even realizing it he was relying on her and kind of trusting women again which also ended up changing the entire perception of women in the story because as he started trusting women again and relying on her Um, She sort of humanized herself, which in turn humanized 
sort of every woman in the story and everybody living in their country and in that time period. So one part of the story that I found very interesting are the two tales that Shahrazad's father tells her uh, before she leaves to marry the king. And the two tales are the tale of the ox and the donkey and the tale of the merchant and his wife. So the tale of the ox and donkey, as we read earlier, is kind of describing a situation where someone ends up disadvantaging themselves to help someone else. So the donkey... uh, kind of relieves the pressure from the bull, but then he ends up having to plow the fields, which puts him at a severe disadvantage and a significantly worse life. And Charizard's father is telling this to her in order to make her realize that her attempt to save the women of the kingdom will only end up in her own regret, where she will most likely lose her life or live a life that she wouldn't want to live. Additionally, it has to do with satisfaction in your life, where her father is telling her that she should be satisfied with the things that she have and the way her life is, but instead she kind of trades that for like almost like a gamble, where she's like gambling her life to save the people of the country. And additionally, it's about outsmarting an authority figure who is the merchant, because the the donkey is instructing the bull on what to do. And it's a way of the bull being able to rest without the merchant knowing, because at that point he hadn't heard overheard what they were saying. And that correlates to Scheherazade and the king, because she's basically outsmarting the king throughout the whole time that she's telling her stories. And building on that, it kind of creates this idea of like disobedience um, within the story, because if Scheherazade was, was, a, was like, a normal female character in that day and age she would listen to the male character who kind of oppressed her throughout her life and she would be like okay I won't do this because you you tell me not to do this but instead she goes against her social like her social status and ends up uh, writing the situation so like she could be considered like not only the heroine but like a true feminist towards the uh, towards the rest of the female community yeah I think she's kind of like stepping out of like the set gender norms that I think society in that time sort of built for her. So I think her influencing the way um, women are viewed in that time period is... Righteous, yeah. Yeah, yeah, righteous. So going back to the two tales that Shahrazad's father tells her before she goes and marries the king, the second one that I took a look at, well, the second one total, is the tale of the merchant and his wife. And this is kind of a darker take on, like, her situation because the merchant ends up beating his wife in order for her to obey and allow him to live out his life without telling her the secret. And this is correlating to how Shahrazad's father um, views his daughter. So... Another kind of interesting point about this and how it's kind of like a darker tale is that Charizard's father prefaces this story with, I shall treat you as this man treated his wife, meaning like beating her. And it, it comes off as like kind of a threat for her to reconsider, but she doesn't reconsider. She goes kind of out of the bounds, as we've been talking about, of her gender role in order to move towards like her heroic sort of ending. 
Um, along with this, Shaharazard knew that what she was getting herself into in opposition to the other woman that would be going into this with Shahariar and getting deflowered, she knew what she was getting into despite some of the holdbacks this made her more confident in what she was doing and which ended up in the positive outlook of the whole situation and getting the respect that all the women deserve towards the king. Right, and that just proves how righteous she was because knowing that how dangerous of a situation she was getting herself into, she still decided to rebel against the sort of gender norms and the stereotypes of a woman of that time. Um, and in the end, she was successful. All right, in conclusion, uh, the story that was built around possibly hundreds of years has so much historical context that it kind of bleeds through into the work. And you see that not only through the religious um, affiliation that most of this most of the story has with the Muslim um, Muslim interpretation, but also just like the way that uh, different genders are uh, are looked upon. So the protagonist, obviously, being Shahrazar, and uh, the antagonist being Sharia. Finally, like the female plight that Shahrazar had to go through, and like trailblazing her way into a new age for the females in this in this uh, society that they wrote the uh, prelude to. And uh, in the end, it creates a great frame for the house that the story is. Group 3 signing off. Archetypes and Anarchy is produced by me, Courtney Floyd, and researched and written by my spring 2018 Introduction to Fiction students at the University of Oregon. Our theme music is Music Box by The Underscore Orchestra, and our closing music is Wolf, It's Really Rather Rad by High Arches both of which are available under a Creative Commons license at the Free Music Archive. Hear the sound of the wolf that lives in the woods Comes to my back door from time to time Shake the hand of the sun that burns above Reaches down over everyone Got your jackal and heart, your monster inside Pouring water over your fire I incurl us a soul, then I need to go Back into the woods, I'm told Not a single living thing Needs to be left out You can find in the garden What's missing in yourself There's a spider web That can access Connected by the number nine Can you think in visions And breathe in rhythms Dream an ocean over your lips it brings a deeper meaning a powerful feeling brings us the myths we're told and it's only clean water that supports the things that we're trying to grow not a single living cell needs to be left out you can find in the garden what's missing in yourself have you 
Sing the way the speaker makes a pattern in the sand When the frequency is just right, oh man It's really rather rare 